A Mucky Business with Tim Farron. Hello, I'm Tim Farron and welcome to the show which delves into the mucky business of politics through the eyes of Christians. You might think politics is tainted by compromise and sin. Well, of course, you would be right. But then again, so is everything else. And I think that we should be praying in an informed way for our brothers and sisters who operate in and around the world of politics. Today, we're going to be joined by Chine MacDonald. Chine is an author, speaker and broadcaster, as well as director at the religion and society think tank Theos. She'll deliver some challenges to us about how we view God and how we view the world we live in. But first, let's talk about small boats and human rights. Everybody else is. If you had not heard about the new illegal immigration bill before, you will surely have noticed that it sparked a complete meltdown of the BBC sports coverage over the weekend. This followed the BBC's attempt to discipline Match the Day presenter Gary Lineker for a tweet voicing his opposition to this bill. It raised a raft of issues around freedom of expression, government pressure and the role of the BBC as a publicly funded broadcaster, which could easily form the basis of another monologue. However, today I want to address the bill itself. And I better warn you that I feel just as strongly about this as Gary Lineker, so I might just share my opinions. Other opinions are available. Home Secretary Suella Braverman says that her new bill is all about trying to stop the small boat crossings from France to the UK. I absolutely agree that these crossings should be stopped. We've already seen many lives lost in the channel, but I think this bill is a pretty shameful piece of legislation and that it won't even work. The government intends to detain and deport anyone who arrives here by small boat and make it illegal for them ever to re-enter this country. Now, that includes women or children who are escaping sexual slavery, for example. The government admits that this is likely to break international human rights laws. Now, if Hungary or Bulgaria or Turkey decide to do something that disregarded the European Convention on Human Rights, what would we say? we probably accuse their leaders of being autocratic, law-breaking despots. And by the way, the European Convention on Human Rights has absolutely nothing to do with the EU. Every country in Europe signs up to it, except for Russia and Belarus. And I'm not entirely convinced that we want to copy them. Disregarding or contradicting a decade-old international treaty is a surefire way to lose friends, respect and therefore influence in the world, but it is also a disproportionate response. Here's some context. In 2022, Spain received 79,000 asylum applications. France received nearly 113,000 and Germany almost 165,000. The UK received just under 67,000. Per capita, there are 18 other European countries who take more refugees than we do. Also, we take fewer refugees today than we did 20 years ago. So we are not being swamped or invaded, or any of the other incendiary claims being banded about. It is true, however, that we are terrible at processing the people who come here, and so there is a dreadful backlog. That is the only reason why there are asylum seekers stuck in hotels. Most of these applicants are fleeing desperate situations in their countries. Those who aren't should be processed quickly and humanely returned to a safe country. But that's not happening either. How should we approach this as Christians? I have brothers and sisters in Christ who sincerely take a different view on this bill. But surely we must start by treating others as we would wish to be treated in their situation. We should recall the many instructions in the Bible to help the stranger or the foreigner in our midst 
and the command to love our neighbour. And Christians should be most committed to human rights. After all, if there is no God, then all human rights are a temporary fashion or fiction. They have no standing. Yet if there is a God, then there are human rights. Humans are made in his image and hold ultimate awesome dignity. So if our government removes the legal human right for those who present as refugees to have their cases even considered in the country that they land in, then we should be most appalled. I'm not arguing for open borders or for never returning someone who applies for asylum, but I do expect our government to act justly and to love mercy, even if it does not always walk humbly with our God. The government's own figures demonstrated that the bulk of those arriving from Syria, Iran, Iraq, Pakistan, Eritrea and Sudan are genuine refugees. In the parable of the sheep and goats, Jesus makes this chilling remark. Depart from me, you who are cursed, for I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes and you did not clothe me. I failed to live up to this too. I fail daily. Personally, I have no virtue to signal and I need constant grace and forgiveness. But while the Bible doesn't tell us precisely what our asylum policy should be or how many people we should take in, I do believe it gives us some hefty clues. So Ella Braverman is a lawyer. Luke 10 gives the account of another expert in the law who was seeking to justify himself and asked Jesus, who is my neighbour? We all know what the Lord's answer was. A mucky business with Tim Farron. Well, now to our guest this week. Janae MacDonald is the director of Theos and author of a number of books, including God is Not a White Man. Morning, Janae. Good morning. Good to be here. Let's start off by asking you about your faith. Tell me how you describe it and how you, how you came to be a Christian. You know, when I think about my Christian faith, my Christian journey, I have to start way before I was born, actually, uh, in 1940, when my great grandfather was ordained an Anglican priest in Nigeria. Um, and there, there are lots of kind of priests, church leaders in my family, I come from a big, huge Nigerian global family. Um, and my parents were raised um uh, my mother was raised Anglican, my dad a Methodist. So I was born into a very Christian um, home uh, with, you know, uh, generations of Christianity. Um, and I guess you could describe my home upbringing as conservative evangelical uh, Christian. We went to lots of different types of churches, actually, growing up. Baptists, uh, we were part of New Frontiers for a while, uh, Church of England churches, um, so I think uh, my understanding of the church is one that crosses, I guess, denominational divides. So I've kind of experienced church in lots of different forms. Um, but I didn't really question much um, growing up as a teenager uh, in an evangelical church. Um, but it was when I arrived at Cambridge uh, to study theology in which I realised um, from that moment, basically, my my faith was uh, it felt like ripped to pieces <laughs> um, and then reconstructed. Um, so I remember that the first term at university we were studying, I think it was the, the synoptic gospels or it felt like the Christmas story was being kind of ripped apart and questioned. Um, and my lecturers were mainly uh, predominantly atheists, which I found absolutely fascinating, who were just interested in the history and the sociology and the anthropology of religion rather than being uh, people of faith themselves. So I found that really difficult, actually, probably for 
um, the first year at least, where all of a sudden I was um, facing questions that I hadn't had before, um, facing challenge and doubt around um, the person of Jesus, but also the existence of God itself. So we were studying things like um, neuroscience and its relation to religious belief or uh, the Big Bang Theory. Um, and probably to try and um, rescue some sense of kind of keeping my faith together, I would go to three different churches on a Sunday. <laughs> so I would go to um, uh, a, a city church uh, in the morning. I'd sometimes go to Evensong. Uh, and then I'd go to another uh, kind of in, uh, Anglican church in the evenings because I was kind of desperate to keep God in me. Um, and I realised at one point, a few months in, that actually, if I believed in God, then God was big uh, and God was able to withstand the challenges um, and God was able to handle my questions. Um, so I then then approached my my, my faith, I guess, or my, my theology, um, I guess, like a little bit more objectively. And in that time, since then, um, my Christian faith has been about God being bigger um, than what I had thought God was before. Mm. I feel like we should ask you lots more questions about that and and the difficulty of of being a Christian uh, in a place of um, well, the academy where you've got people who you assume know better than you, who um, who you then find think very different things to you. I fear that might be for another podcast, but let's let's whiz straight on <laughs> to or another version of this one, I should say, to where you are now. See, the director of Theos. Tell me how that came about and then tell me what Theos does. Yeah, so I have been at Theos for about a year, just over a year. Um, half of that was having my second baby. But I remember when Liz Oldfield, my predecessor, got the job 11 years ago because I've known her for a long time. I remember thinking that is the job that I want um, because uh, my sense of calling is a deep sense of calling that my role is to communicate the good news of the Christian faith to a world that no longer sees its relevance and no longer understands it. Um, and that's been the thread that's run through kind of my, my whole career. So I studied theology, but then I trained as a newspaper journalist. Um, I was a kind of faith religion reporter for a while. Um, I worked for the Evangelical Alliance. I was director of communications and my I saw my calling as to kind of try and detoxify the brand of evangelicalism and say that Christianity was good news. Um, mm. And then I worked in international development, so for World Vision and Christian Aid, but particularly in communications, in um, influence, in public engagement, so telling stories um, that engage the public. So, but Theos for me was always a unique role. Um, the director of Theos was a unique role in which the whole um, point of Theos is to um, tell a better story about Christianity in public life. So that's politics, arts, culture, um, in a world that often sees Christianity as irrelevant, as backwards, um, as anti-intellectual, as not, not good for society. So we, we are a think tank, a religion and society think tank. That's how we describe ourselves because underpinning our work is um, really strong research so we do research on a range of different issues, um, but then we also um, involve, uh, get involved in conversations in the media about the role of the Christian faith in public life and how great and amazing it is. A Mucky Business with Tim Farron. 
We're speaking to Janae MacDonald, who is the director of Theos. Janae, your book, God is Not a White Man, is very challenging. And I wonder if you could perhaps just talk us through what brought you to the point where you chose to write it. Yeah, it was actually in writing my my first book in 2013, which was called Am I Beautiful, which explored um, body image among Christian women. And when I finished writing that book, I realised that actually a lot of what shapes my views of the world and what it is to be a woman were actually distinctly about being a black Christian woman. Uh, and the particular, um, I guess, challenges and things that black women who are Christians um Kind of come up against and face in our lifetimes. So I was tasked with writing a book uh, about what it was to be um, a black Christian woman. And in thinking about that, I realized that um, my experience of my Christian faith is um, as a black woman and in a world that so often um, puts forward an idea of the ideal human, the ideal person made in God's image being male and white. And one of the mechanisms and symbols in which I explore that is through images of God and Jesus. So the book is called God is Not a White Man, as you can see. Mm. Uh, and it, uh, it talks about how, if you think about um, the predominant images throughout the centuries of mm. God and Jesus, they would be of things like um, uh, Christ of St. John of the Cross by Salvador Dali or Holman Hunt's Light of the World. Um, uh, or Warner Salmon's Head of Christ, these images that are kind of uh, ingrained in public consciousness of Jesus being white, and then you've got God as kind of Father Christmas figure um, sitting on a cloud with a white beard. Uh, now, factually, uh, we know that Jesus probably wasn't white and didn't have blue eyes, um, and we know that God is not um, a human being, so therefore, and doesn't have a human body, See, a Jesus incarnate was was human. Um, so, so then it then you ask the question: Why is it that those images are so predominant? And they are because, if you think about it, globally, there is this um, a pervasive idea about whiteness and maleness being better, being supreme in some way, potentially being closer to God. So, I explore kind of uh, the imagery, but also use it as a way to explore. Um, uh, I guess, white superiority, um, both uh, around the world, but also in the church, including theology and some of our practice. And given that God is depicted as as white, you're right, in so much imagery, uh, even uh, even today, do we, what, what impact does that have both on black Christians and black non-Christians in terms of speaking to them about their faith or trying to draw them to Christianity? I think um, the impact almost can't be seen until until someone points it out. And that's why well, that's what that's why it's pervasive, isn't mm. it? Um, I guess I could say that it's not just Jesus and God that weren't white, but Mary wasn't white, uh, Moses, David, all those people, the whole of the kind of biblical narrative, and um, these people weren't white. And the impact of that, um, I hadn't realized until I started to, started to think about it. So the first time that I ever um, saw a depiction of God as a black woman was in reading The Shack um, by William P. Young, um, in which uh, there is kind of uh, this depiction of God as, as in three persons, Jesus as a Middle Eastern man, the Holy Spirit as an Asian woman, 
and God the Father, God Papa as a black woman. Um, and I remember the moment that I kind of came across this image reading this book, I was profoundly affected by it. Um, uh, it's not something I had ever kind of campaigned for or thought about, but I realized just for that moment in that kind of fictional story, what it might be like to understand um, the impact of what it is to see uh, myself reflected in God. Now that's something that um, white men might take for granted because it's just kind of the, just how it is. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, the, and the thing about it is in terms of the impact, I realize that let's say depicting Jesus, um, still today, when I when I close my eyes or I pray and I think about and picture Jesus, I'm picturing a white Jesus, um, and that's going to take years and years to kind of mm. get get rid of that. But the impact of that is that is a falsity. So you know, when I'm thinking about worship, when I'm thinking about um, uh, Jesus breaking down walls between um, ourselves and God, when I think about salvation, when I think about God, Jesus on the cross. I'm picturing something that is kind of not real um yeah. and that yeah it's hard to overestimate i guess the impact of that now the the biblical narratives around the person of god absolutely as you quite rightly say there is n- no indication of color at all and yet given and, and, and if anything then given where the bible was written then the one thing we can be sure is that um that jesus was not white in either was almost anybody in in the in the bible narratives there is constant reference to god being male how do you how do you approach that yeah i think about um um so, so the bit that i guess i uh, is a challenge for me or in thinking about this issue is is it's jesus describing god as father so that is not um you know, I'm not going to dispute that. Um, but you think about the the context in which the Bible was translated was a very patriarchal context. So it would always make sense um, within those contexts to describe um, God in the male, because ma- maleness equaled power um, and status and all of those things. Um, so yes, absolutely. Um, most often, God is described as male throughout the Bible. However, one of the things I think we underestimate is the number of um uh instances of imagery around god that are kind of more female mm. and so god described as a mother hen or mm. in the genesis account how um it is not um, a male pronoun used for the holy spirit in, in the kind of creation story but it's it's a feminine pronoun um there are other examples as well that we kind of forget um so uh, and kind of thinking about imagery of um giving birth or the relationship between a mother and a child mm. uh, for, for lots of people that is a probably more helpful um yeah. symbol of of what god is to them or who god is to them now given that we're in a time certainly in the west where christianity appears to be uh, more of a minority faith than had been in the past the crucial thing obviously in reaching out to people of all different backgrounds uh, with the gospel becomes why it always it's always our central mission but do, do you feel it's important that we get the way we think about god right in order to communicate the gospel and as you said at the beginning god is just so big <laughs> um is it is it better for us to think more that we simply can't 
visualise God and it's wrong even to try? I think that's probably more helpful. Um, but then I think about some other faith traditions in which there, there aren't depictions of God. Has that made them more, I guess, uh, uh, equal in terms of thinking about the roles of men and women, not necessarily. So I don't think that is the, the, an easy answer. I, I spoke at a primary school a couple of years ago and I uh, it was a Church of England school and I asked the children, what do you think God looks like? Expecting them to say, Father Christmas, etc. And they said, oh, I think God looks like a ball of energy. Um, another one said, I think God looks like a yin-yang sign. <laughs> Um, and I was completely blown away mm. by their descriptions. They didn't have this idea, uh, all these preconceptions about what God might look like, probably because they didn't know much about Christianity full stop. Yeah. But I I think it might help us to um, free God from the kind of man-shaped boxes that we've put God in, in our heads, um, to help us to be able to think of and understand God as as bigger, as transcending um, just the human human form final thing um talked a little bit about how you'd come to university with a with a faith from childhood and you felt very challenged uh, by your experiences there and came through it what advice would you give to your younger self i think i would try and um on the theology and faith uh, in mm. particular to not kind of fight against that kind of the doubt um, at that point, because I think it was really important for me to work through that. Mm -hmm. um, and to be honest, having come out of university, um, there's pretty much nothing that you could say to me now that would make me doubt the existence of God. And that's not intellectually um, uh, that that's true, but also because God isn't just about um, theology or academia there is a personal experience of relationship with God relationship with Jesus um that for me um can't be doubted so my my mum would say that I know it in my Noah so I would say to my younger self um know it in your Noah be relaxed about the challenge um and then practically kind of career-wise I would say um that you're going to fail sometimes um but it's okay you know, that's marvellous. We've had uh, far too little time to talk about some fascinating things and only really skimmed over one of your books, but we're really grateful to you for your time. Thanks for being with us. Thank you. Each week, we give you the opportunity for you to ask any question you'd like about this mucky business of politics. It may be how an aspect of this world impacts us Christians who work within it, or maybe there's a particular issue that you're struggling to make sense of. Well, I'd love to hear from you and attempt an answer. So my pot of questions is not as big as we'd like. So please drop me an email to farinatpremier.org.uk and there is a very strong chance I'll be answering it on an episode over the next few weeks. Well, this week, Miranda has been in touch and she asks the following. After listening to the very moving interview Steve Baker did with Matt Chorley about his depression and the abuse he received online and how it affected him, I had a look at his Twitter feed and then at yours and the tweets you both get are really awful from both sides of politics. Listening to MPs speaking to the awful messages they receive on Twitter and how it impacts them, I'm wondering, wouldn't the upsides of all MPs deciding to go off Twitter completely make up for any downsides? Because this can't be good for any of you. 
Miranda, thanks very much for your question and thanks for your care as well, because it, it does it does matter. And I, I also very moved by Steve's account of the impact of the whole political discourse of the last few years on his mental health. And in particular, the pretty unpleasant stuff that's come his way via Twitter and social media. I think, first of all, I think social media is an opportunity in a place where me as a member of parliament can engage more generally and including and especially with my constituents to speak and to listen. It's also, though, a place which can become very brutal. And I feel it myself sometimes. And so whilst I don't think I'm planning in any way to move away from using social media, I need to remind myself that when I'm using it, I need to be kind to others, always mindful of how I come across to others. And I don't need to be a place if um, it's a place that's going to make me unhappy or anxious. And I also need to remember, you know, if your right eye offends you, pluck it out, not to go a place if it's a place that leads me into being a bad witness. So every day, and I'm thinking of God's mercies being new each morning, I need to make sure I apply those mercies to others when I appear on Twitter and other forms of social media. If you have a question for Tim, email farron at premier.org.uk. Well, let's end our time together in prayer. Loving Heavenly Father, we lift up to you the small boats, the illegal immigration bill that's being discussed in Parliament at the moment. Um, we thank you for legislators who make decisions on uh, these issues. We pray that there would be wisdom given to those who make the decisions, particularly to our Home Secretary, to our Prime Minister, but to all members of Parliament. We also pray that those of us engaged in the debate, whether it be in Parliament or uh, watching and participating in discussions on social media, that we would use language that um, does not dehumanise, that is a language that is kind to the other, that we would be curious and um, treating with dignity the uh, positions that other people hold. May we as Christians be good witnesses for you, not just in the positions that we hold, but the way in which we express them. And Lord, we think ahead of or to the budget uh, when the Chancellor Jeremy Hunt will announce decisions on government spending and taxation and so on, that's going to have an impact upon our economy and on the and on millions of families, many of whom are struggling to get by. So we just pray for wisdom for him and for all in government and for all who engage in the budget, from officials to opposition spokespeople to all of those involved. But we also pray for those on whom it will have the most impact. We pray for there to be compassion. We pray for there to be justice. And we ask, Lord, that your will will be done. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, thank you so much for joining us for this week's show. Don't forget, you can catch up on past episodes which feature interviews with party leaders, former government ministers and MPs from all the major parties. Just search for A Mucky Business on your chosen podcast provider or head to premierchristianradio.com forward slash A Mucky Business. 